Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn, and you are listening to Rethinking EDU. So I'm super excited to be here with my guests on our first ever Knowledge Drop episode. As you may have noticed, we're in the middle of our series on networks in uh, in our second season on Rethinking EDU. We're going to start to introduce these Knowledge Drop episodes as a way for each of us as co-hosts to kind of singularly explore an interesting topic um, that we find to be really relevant and pertinent to what's happening in the educational world right now. And so this is my uh, knowledge drop episode on college admissions. And I'm hanging out with my friends, Chris and Kevin. Chris and Kevin, how are you guys doing? What's been happening? What's up, guys? Hey, Mike. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. No problem. No problem. So glad you guys could join me um, this fine evening. And uh, I'm hoping during this episode we can cover a lot of ground. There's a lot of things happening, a lot of things to talk about. Um, there are certain things that are happening with testing companies right now that we hope to talk about tonight. And then, of course, we're in the middle of um, protesting because of the death of George Floyd and other um, recent deaths of people of color that we could talk about uh, for a really long time. And if you're interested in, in hearing more about Rethinking EDU's take on that, listen to our previous episode which was an interview with Kevon Terman and the Brothers Brunch. I think we do a good job of kind of exploring what's happening in the world right now. We're not going to talk about that this evening, but instead what we are going to talk about is this path that, you know, uh, society has sort of determined is the most lucrative path for students, and that is learning at uh, college or university. And so Chris and Kevin and I all work at different schools, all in the greater Philadelphia area, kind of doing this work to help guide students through this college admissions process. And so, Chris, again, thanks for being here. Why don't you give us the skinny? Who are the students that you're working with? If you want to share your school, that would be awesome, too. So I am a college advisor, and I work primarily with 12th grade students, a little bit with 11th as well, at a charter network in Philadelphia called Mastery Charter Schools. Um, my my particular high school, of which there are few that Mastery has, mine is located in South Philadelphia. And I work primarily with first-generation, low-income students of color who come from a very wide array of backgrounds. I teach students who are English language learners, some who are immigrants, some who are undocumented, others who are documented of many different races and backgrounds. So. My job is really interesting doing college and career for that, but it's definitely something I'm passionate about. Cool. That's awesome. And Chris, how long have you been doing that work for? About seven years now. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. And Kev, what about you? Where do you, where are you working? And tell me, tell us a little bit about your, the types of students you're working with. So um, I work at a girls independent Catholic school on the main line called the Academy of Notre Dame. Um, so it's kind of a bit of a different situation than, than Chris's, uh, Chris's school. Um, so the students that I work with are um, primarily um, uh, affluent uh, students from the main line. Um, so, and again, it's all girls. It's an independent Catholic school. So there is that religious element to it as well. Um, and uh, it's hundred percent college going. Um, so a, you know, a, a sort of a very different set of, concerns and challenges and, um, you know, and things to kind of, kind of figure out and work with. Um, but uh, it's, I think it's been very interesting working with um, students on the high school side. My background prior to this has been the college side. Um, I worked at uh, Princeton University in admissions for seven years and uh, some schools before that as well. Um, so I'm in my, uh, just finishing my second year um, high school side, and um, it's been really interesting learning about um, kind of the you know the way that things are uh, sort of different for students, um, helping and helping them kind of get into college and kind of figuring out their entire path through that process. Cool, cool. Thanks, Kevin. And so my school it's called Aim Academy. It's a um, independent grades one through twelve school just outside of Philadelphia. It is for students with language-based learning disabilities. So most of my students are diagnosed with some uh, version of dyslexia, dysgraphia, or dyscalculia as their primary diagnosis. And so they are working through the college process with my guidance and my uh, department's guidance to try to figure out whatever the best fit post-secondary learning opportunity for them is. For the most part, for our school, um, we're about like 95 plus percent college going after graduation. Um, occasionally students will do uh, trade programs or, or other types of uh, 
similar work-ready programs. But for the most part, students are going to university um, and college after they graduate. Uh, Chris, just to give us a little insight, where are most of Mastery students going? Sure. So we send roughly at my high school, and it varies between each of the Mastery schools. We send roughly a quarter of our students each year to a community college. We send probably another third or so to a four-year school. And then we send a good chunk of our students into the workforce or workforce training program, trade school, or a military branch. Interesting. Okay. And Kevin, for you, most of your girls are heading off to um, just traditional colleges or universities. You Would you say, do you have many community college goers or trade school goers? Um, no, we don't. It's, it's really, uh, it, it's for your college um, for, uh, yeah, across the board. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so that kind of, I hope, gives the audience members some like situation of our positions uh, at our various types of schools. And uh, I want to kind of get into the meat of what's been happening in our jobs right now as they relate to the world we're living in. And so my first question for either of you who want to jump in is, you know, we've we've encountered an unusual spring. Obviously, all three of us were in school at one point in March and then sent home. And we've been doing our job from home since sometime in March. And what's been some of the struggles you've encountered in in your work? Obviously, all three of our schools are are encouraging students to go to college after they graduate or pursue some other type of learning after they graduate. And I think it's always a struggle when when um, you're not necessarily a classroom teacher and you're also not occupy, occupying like an administration role. And so we're in this sort of like, you know, gray area of working with students. And Chris, maybe let's start with you. What's that experience been like for you and what are some of the struggles you've encountered? Oh my gosh, man, where to begin? which I think is pretty much <laughs> right. the story of Corona. Um, this experience has absolutely highlighted, put a spotlight on, zoomed in, magnified all of the issues that my students tend to face on a pretty regular basis, whether they come from a low-income background or some students who have harder time getting away from like large crowds of people who might live in their very own house or maybe are taking care of a younger sibling um, while also trying to balance all of their learning that they're doing. And in addition to that, many of my students have not previously had internet access or really the proper devices to be accessing the internet on. Uh, most of them have typed essays on their phones for, for a while. I shouldn't say most, many of my students have done that. And so this experience has been not necessarily eye-opening because this is something that I have known, our staff has known, our our students have, you know, been facing for a while now, but it has absolutely come to the fore because of, you know, Lady Rona. Yeah, yeah. I um I totally agree with you. I think we have, you know, we have a, a number of our students that experience some pretty serious um, school anxiety uh, at my school and placing them behind a camera uh, <laughs> for all of their classmates to just watch the entire, you know, 30 minutes that they're in a Zoom classroom has been so debilitating for some of those students. You know, we've had a couple students that just were like, we had to get in touch with their parents and say, can we just get your student to come with their video off to the class for five minutes, check in with the teacher, and then they can go back to being anonymous again. It's so hard when you're sitting there and you're a little three inch or two and a half inch by two and a half inch square or whatever size you are on Zoom meeting. Um, and it is really like, amplified those feelings about school you know um it's also we i work in a school that emphasizes direct reading instruction to remediate years of a 
past a uh, lack of school progress, and B, to remediate issues with a language-based learning difference. And getting that instruction over Zoom conference has been super, super, super challenging. So those are kind of like broad strokes of what's challenging in my school, but in my job in particular, I found that, man, scheduling meetings with students and getting students to follow up with one-on-one -on -one meetings, oh man, that's been, <laughs> it's been crazy challenging. What about for you, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think both, um, both from the standpoint of just scheduling meetings and things is, is very challenging. I mean, it all depends on students replying to emails and then showing up when you schedule the meeting. It's like on the one hand, from a technology standpoint, it's incredibly easy. You make the meeting, they get the invite, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then do they show up? Do they respond to the email to begin with? Do they accept the meeting? All, all those frustrating things. Um, so it's, you know, from a, from a logistical standpoint, it's challenging. But, um, but I think, but one thing I want to, I want to jump back to is um, what, uh, to get back to what Chris was saying. I think um, when I was thinking about this question earlier today, um, it kind of made me realize that I feel like what's happened is this, you know, this whole situation has basically taken everything and just doubled it. So like mm -hmm. the students who are largely already, um, you know, without many of the advantages that my students, my population of students has, and you know, you're basically doubling that advantage that my students have, and you're doubling that disadvantage that, that his students have. And it's really shining a light on just how incredibly unequal um, the situation is and the reality is. Like, you know, I don't think a single one of my students has to worry about having a room in a house quietly, you know, even with their siblings home from college. Like, they still have a room somewhere in their house to sit. Also, they have Wi-Fi, and also they go to a school that has a that's a one-to-one -one MacBook Apple school where they have their own laptop dedicated and they have tech support for it. So, you know, and that's not, you know, that's not something that Chris can say about his students. And that's, it's just really, uh, it's really put in perspective for me. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's made me less sympathetic <laughs> when our kids complain <laughs> about, you know, how, the, how they, you know, the situation is, they don't like it or it's hard for them, or whatever, you know, I've really had to bite my tongue a lot, but but it's made me certainly think like, well, you have internet access, you have food security, you have power, you have um, all of the creature comforts that you could ever possibly need. You're just inconvenienced. You're not in a bad way. You're simply in an annoying situation, you know. And that's not what other. That's not what a lot of other students, many many other students throughout the country and the world, can say right now. And so I wish there was a way to really. And without making it seem like we were chastising them, because like my kids are my kids are wonderful and it's not their fault, but um, I wish there was a way to really sort of make it clear to them that even in this difficult situation, they still are um, they're still way ahead of the game in in most cases, and and they are not they're they're not falling behind anything because of this. In fact, if anything, they're going further ahead, and it's it's not fair. Kevin, can I? actually ask a related question because um, to give a little bit of background i i completely agree with what you're saying i think the doubling of the advantage and doubling of the disadvantage is so true and i think there's oftentimes a danger of thinking this is accidental and one of the opportunities that corona gives us is a chance to talk about the racist policies that have been in place for so so many years that have led to these disparities that are being highlighted and it's hard when, especially as a teenager, but as anybody who, you know, we're living in our own experiences every day, and it's hard to imagine outside of that oftentimes. What are some of the things that are or are not happening at your school, you know, to have those discussions with your students about, you know, here's what other folks are experiencing, or here's why this is happening? <laughs> <laughs> Chris just dropping bombs here. <laughs> All right, yeah, I did. Yeah, no, 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 no Chris, that's, a, that's an amazing question. Um, and, and and I will say, I I um, it, it's it's one that I've this, this has really put it in stark contrast. Um, you know, my my school is again, it's a it's a wonderful place. There's great people there, but it's it's kind of a country club, um, and it's not a place that um, everybody is incredibly well intentioned and. And, you know, and, and, uh, but it's, there's not a lot of, um, not a lot of talk about 
um, you know, other than saying we support this, we support that, we, you know, we're, you know, we're sympathetic, we're encouraging, like, you know, we are a Catholic school. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, there's a big service component to it and a lot of belief in, in serving others um, as a core mission, but um, there's not, there's just to be completely honest, not a lot done about um, really um, making students and making families and making the community truly understand um, you know, what it means to, to not have the advantages that our students have. Um, just that's, that's not something, I don't want to, don't in any way want to trash my school, but it's not something that we're particularly, I think, at this moment equipped to do very well. Um, and I think it's something that really, I would love it if, if they put more effort into really making themselves equipped, because there's no reason we can't be equipped to do it. Yeah, I just want to point out that like all of the independent schools in the greater Philadelphia area are on a, on a, on a different kind of spectrum when it comes to addressing issues of privilege and diversity, equity, and inclusion in their communities. And it certainly is a process, you know, some communities are more comfortable talking about these things than others. And so I, I would say that, um, you know, I sit on my head's council for diversity, equity, and inclusion at my school, and we meet uh, twice monthly to talk about you know, what's happening in our school? How are we talking about privilege on a regular basis? You know, what are the things that we're doing to address systemic uh, ideas of racism that exist in the world? And talking about those things in our curricula and in our uh, regular conversations with students, it hasn't been just like we just decided to do that one day. You know, that's like a three, four year process that we've entered in on at my school. And so I think that it, hasn't been an easy process either because it's taken a lot of work within our community to try to talk about privilege in a way that is um, productive. And so we've been trying to do that work now for a while. And I know that other independent schools in, in our area are very committed to doing that work as well. And I think it it is one of the major contrasts that exists, like you were saying, Chris and Kevin, between a school like Mastery, where Chris is working in a school like Kevin's or a school like mine. Well, I just wanted to say, like, I by no means wanted to put you as, like, you know, the only school that doesn't have this figured out. Like, Mastery absolutely also does not have it figured out. And um, even just re in recent weeks, our staff has been engaged in a lot of discussions about how to bridge racial divides among students among staff and reach across cultures and it is absolutely a difficult thing no matter what school you're at um so i i, I didn't mean to imply in any way that your school is the only one oh, please no no i chris i you know me i don't take it i'm not taking anything personally <laughs> i didn't like that well let's chris i know you wanted to share one more one more thing um and then i want to get on to the next question yeah so I just wanted to highlight too, Mike, you had mentioned carrying trauma through from one time in a student's life all the way up into and including and then beyond the college admissions and college completion process. Yeah. A lot of our students come from pretty traumatic school experiences where they're um, maybe like experience in fourth or fifth grade where a teacher just kept telling them you're never going to read ever. So why don't why do you come to school? Which is something that kids at my school have heard their their past teachers say to them. Um, bringing that level of trauma through high school and into the college admissions process when you you know are having to take a standardized test and you're questioning whether you can actually learn any of this stuff is is pretty intense. Yeah this is an important time to bring awareness to those students um i have a there's a student i know who shortly before the pandemic happened lost his dad and was already therefore in the grieving process and the family is dealing with so much and then to also lose the in-person support system and not just for that student but anybody else who's coming from an unhealthy environment or any sort of day-to-day -day trauma that they're experiencing for them to not have their social workers and counselors, but also then to not be receiving the same guidance through financial aid touch points that are so important in the spring. And how do I navigate loans and my deposit and 
can it be waived and can it not? And oh my gosh, now I'm finding out I might not even live on campus in the fall. I've worked my entire life to get to this point and what do I do? I feel both alone and excited, but also scared and it's just a crazy time. Yeah, and I guess all of this is sort of exacerbated by uh, by COVID, of course, right? Students experiencing also the fear of even going outside um, without having to wear a mask with the governor of the state saying to them, and, uh, you know, whether whatever you believe about governors saying things to their citizens about staying home, but trying trying his best to protect the citizens of of the state of Pennsylvania by saying to them, hey, guys, like it's dangerous out there because there's a disease floating around that you could get and you could potentially die from. Right. That's that adds to this trauma. And then also you pile on what's happening with testing companies right now. And this doesn't really affect our current um, seniors who, you know, may graduate tomorrow or, or next week or whatever they're never they're going to graduate. But we're talking about our next class of students, the class of uh, you know, 2021 in particular. And these students are now trying to wade through this pandemic and watching as the world is trying to respond and thinking, what is going to happen with my future? And one of the ways that their future has been determined for the in the United States in particular has been taking standardized tests like the SAT and the ACT. And, you know, <laughs> we have... It's really challenging for me to talk about this and not laugh because there's just been this like inept response by both of the college board and the ACT to understand what's really going on with students, um, particularly in our in in all of what they're facing in terms of challenges right now. And I know that all three schools have some sort of test emphasis because we understand that you know if our student is going to go to one of the big colleges here in Pennsylvania, they're going to need a test to get accepted. And right now, those tests are not even really all that accessible. And we're in a time where colleges are slowly saying, well, you know, we don't really, you don't really need a test, but not every college is saying that. And and then the ACT and the SAT are coming back at them and saying like, well, but tests are important. And so you should take them. So we're in this like bizarro land. It's like a, it's like, <laughs> it's like a theme park, you know. Um, Kevin, what's going on with your girls? I mean, so, so again, I think this is another example of how it, uh, how it is sort of like doubling everything. Where like, and, and in this case, not necessarily income, but like, it's it's, it's making th- it's going to make things easier for the smarter kids because have the smarter kids that that are and, and the more savvy kids um that uh you know like i have i have a handful of students who who already took their tests and did really well and are done you know i have a girl who got her 35 second try act in in february like because she's really smart she was really on top of things she also had the resources through our school and through her family to to know to do that and to prepare ahead of time and so like so she is is completely going to be just fine, you know, and, and there's going to be a lot of students around the, throughout the country that are, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a year of haves and have nots. Like the haves are going to be the ones that have the really high test scores who already took them. And then you're going to have this huge block that will not be able to take them either at all or maybe just once. And so, yeah, so we have a ton of kids who are going to take them March 14th, I think, SAT. Um, and yeah. Um, and ironically, we didn't have a ton who were signed up for the April ACT because there was a big a controversy because that was the morning after prom at my school. So a lot of students didn't sign up for it. Turned out to not be, to not be an issue anyways. But, um, but yeah, I was like, come on, girl. Really? Just, it's, it's the ACTs. You know, if you want to take them, then take them then. Don't worry about Well, but anyways, whatever. <laughs> um, no, but so there, there's a, a significant number of students um, in, in my school that um, – that have not taken, you know, rising seniors who have not taken standardized tests yet, and many of many of them are the ones who are, you know, academically on the weaker side, um, and are the ones where 
know, they were they're in maybe algebra two trig and they were waiting towards the end of the year till being through all the algebra two to take the SATs or take the ACTs because you know it goes through that. Um, you know, and so they waited for March or April or May, um, and now they're you know finding out that they're not in a good spot. And you know, I think it's um, again like. I I I know that the the my kids are going to be fine. Like I'm not worried about them. They're going to be fine. They're going to they may they may it may be a messy process next year, but they're going to be fine. Um, because I think you know when you take away test scores, you just put more focus on the transcript and more focus on the you know the school profile and the, and the actual academic offerings at that school. And um, you know like I'm sure our school will be fine, but. It, it does make me really worry because it then becomes a confidence factor from the college side. Like, do we trust what these, you know, do we trust what these grades are? Do we trust what these grades indicate? Like, you know, does this A, a in this AP course tend to translate to a four or five on an exam or does it tend to translate to a one or a two? How do we trust this? And how does that, what does that mean for, you know, so, so that's where it's troubling, which is, which is why I worry a lot more about the students um, and I'm teeing you up, Chris, here, <laughs> um, because it's, again, like my students will be inconvenienced and annoyed and frustrated, but they're still going to get into colleges. It may not be exactly the same one they want. It may, the process may be confusing, but I really think the more important focus would be on making sure that every school that is going, that, that, you know, whether they're going test optional or not, that they're really, um, they're not losing sight of of the important of pursuing a diverse student body um, and making sure that you're, you know, you're, you're not just like letting this this more difficult work. Just, you're not just like pushing pushing it aside and kind of taking the easy street because it's going to be harder this year to find that that student body. Yeah, totally. I don't know if I even really answered the question there. <laughs> I, I think you totally did. I mean, I mean, you're talking about basically that as much as the ACT and the SAT are doing a bad job of responding to this situation, it almost is like your your school, because of its its place in the greater realm of schools in the world, your kids are going to be inconvenienced, but it'll likely be fine, you know? And, and I think it gets to this other point about, like, the early testers of the SAT and ACT in junior year at this point are the kids that might naturally do better on tests. And I, I push back on the statement about them being quote unquote smarter. I would say they could perform better on a single day standardized exam. I, and, I would fully agree with that. I would, I would fully agree. <laughs> I, I, I amend my, my comment. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so those kids are the ones that are gonna be, you know, uh, most appealing to the schools that still decide that they need tests in their admissions process for for whatever reason. But we also know that those are the students that are, uh, that those are the students that don't necessarily, or, or that aren't necessarily always successful in college. Sometimes it's the students that have to take the exam three times and really prepare and sit down and 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 spend some time and energy with the material that are really going to do well in college because they know what it's like to work hard you know they know what it's like to put in the put in the time and effort um and then chris i'm sure you see many of those students at your school yeah absolutely yeah and when being in philadelphia uh temple is a university that typically draws a solid number of my graduating class each year. And when they made the move to go test mm -hmm. optional in the past couple of years, they did so pretty explicitly by saying that they realized that they were missing out on a lot of great students who, whose accomplishments and hard work and effort are not captured in those tests. And so there's definitely a lot of truth to that. And then I just wanted to bring up too a lot of the logistics that are being brought to the forefront as oh, well. <laughs> There's questions about, well, you know, and Mike, you'll relate to this as well. For students who typically have accommodations, oh my gosh. The I had one student who was told they could basically, as long as they had access to a laptop, take the test over this absurdly long period of time, which at a certain point is just way more draining. 
to the student and the amount of stress that they would be under, but not just for the ACT and SAT, a lot of the students, a lot of my students end up going to a two-year school like Community College of Philadelphia or recently Mastery started a partnership with the Pennsylvania College of Technology through their associate's degree programs. And so both- ooh, ooh, That's awesome. Yeah, it's really great. Um, it's a full financial need program for students who come from lower income backgrounds. And one of the things that's being highlighted right now is both CCP and Pennsylvania College of Technology use a placement test through AccuPlacer to right. place students in their courses. And that's been really difficult. The colleges have been scrambling, figuring out what should their you know, policies be, does the student have to have a, a parent sitting next to them the whole time? Will there be a remote proctor through the other end of the camera? Does the student even have a laptop or a computer that's compatible to do this? It, oh and gosh. the schools are taking honestly a long time to figure it out. So they've sometimes ended up moving toward just using high school GPA, which is expanding the test optional options um, but has been a logistical nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And from our perspective, doing a test like the SAT or the ACT is all about logistics for us. And I'll give you guys a snapshot that'll like weigh your brain down with what we have to deal with every year. So we... <laughs> Bring it on. Usually a test like the ACT or the SAT, we'll, we'll use the ACT as an example. It's just under three hours sitting time. So student shows up 15 minutes, 20 minutes before the exam, they check in, they have their seat at their table, they take each section with a short break in between each section, and they're in and out of the door roughly like three, three and a half hours total experience, right? So for a student who is at my school who might qualify for a reader for the exam, that means that they have triple time for to take the exam over multiple testing days. And we have to certify that the person who is the reader for the exam is a you know legitimate human being and likely a teacher at the school. So that means we've got to broker this time block that one student has to be in the same room with the same adult for potentially um, three, six, almost 10 minutes of testing, which is, absolutely crazy oh my God. <laughs> and wow yeah and 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 we have i would say probably half of our class has readers for their for their exam so that means we are asking and and uh when i took over my job a few years back we moved from in-day testing because you're given a two-week window to proctor the exam through we moved from in-day testing to weekend testing so now we're asking 20, 30 teachers to come in on the weekend to proctor these exams for students that they just basically have to sit there. And for a lot of students, they'll ask to the proctor to read the English section for them, but maybe not the math section. So then the proctor is literally just sitting in the room reading a book for three plus hours on a Saturday afternoon. And we do that three times a year. And it's it's absolutely bonkers, you know, the amount of time and resources we spend um, ha giving students the opportunity. We're not even talking about preparing students for the exam, right? We're just giving them the opportunity to take the exam in a fair and equitable manner. So as the testing, as the test optional movement has been growing, our students have been absolutely jonesed. They've been like, this is awesome. I didn't really want to have to spend all that time preparing for a test like the ACT anyway. Super glad about it. That's probably about half of our students. The other half are absolutely freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh, I really, really wanted to go to Penn State. And Penn State still has yet to declare that they're going test optional. And I don't know that they will declare that they're going to go test optional. And that's one of our what's what's your what's your wager, Mike? What's your wager? <laughs> what's my wager for Penn State going to optional? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. I I'll six pack, you name it. <laughs> all right. I'll say I'll say this. I'll say that I think Penn State will go test optional at its branch campuses 
and potentially won't go test optional for its um for its main campus and try to pipeline more already existing branch campus students onto their main campus as a, as a way to fill up the beds that they have on main campus all branch campuses are taking on more first year students than potentially they ever have in the past. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to say both both Pitt and Penn State main campuses will will go fully test optional. I'm going to I'm going to say the entire Commonwealth system. It's going to be my wager. Um, yeah, okay, what do you think, Chris? I don't see a way for the the Penn uh, the Pennsylvania State System schools. I don't see a way for them not to go test optional. But Penn State, mm-hmm. I think I err on the side of Mike's opinion there, where they might keep Penn State main uh as not test optional right. test required then a, then a six pack to to each of you <laughs> <laughs> Deal. um no but one thing one thing that i think is really um interesting was um remember do you guys remember when uh i forget whether it was sat or act or maybe both um were floating the idea of doing an online version um, sure and i think it was i, think it, I want to say it was loyola marymount university in la that said um yeah, we're we're just we're gonna go test optional because we're not gonna we don't trust that that test is gonna so you know we we're not gonna we're not gonna accept any online test. We're just gonna go test optional instead, um, which which I thought was a really bold move. Basically saying like yeah, we don't want to mess around with any of this newfangled online thing. Like you know the APs are gonna be a mess and they were a mess, um, and so we're just gonna go test optional fully instead. Um, I think that's that's gonna I think that's why. And, and I think in, in the coming weeks, um, there's going to be kind of a second wave of schools that will go test optional. We had that kind of first wave with like Boston University and UC system and a handful of others. Um, and, and they've, you know, then they've been trickling for a while. But just, you know, as we talked about before, just today and yesterday, you know, we have now half the Ivies um, and, you know, a number of others, uh, like practically every day that, that are announcing. And, and I think think it's going to be only a matter of time before essentially any college in like you know any any of the guidebooks um going to be test optional for at least this upcoming year and i think a large portion of them will probably not ever go back because it really is going to take kind of a you have to sort of fundamentally change your entire review process to go test optional so you have to sort of shift your paradigm of of, of review and and i think it's then going to be a question of well I go back because I'm sure they're going to find that the students they admit this next year will have just as high a persistence and success rate as students in the past. So then it's really like, well, what's the point of test scores? Um, you know, but College Road and ACT, I'm sure, are going to try very hard to justify their existence um, and find a way to, you know, hopefully convince schools to still require them. Um, but there, if that feels like it kind of feels like a losing battle. Like you're already getting more schools doing self-reported testing on the Common App, and then with this test optional move, like you're, the the forces are 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 moving a, away from the testing agencies, and I think that's a good thing. And um, but I'm curious to see how the agencies will sort of battle back to justify their existence. Yeah, I think this gets into the next question I really want to talk about, and that's about how our current situation is. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's all it's all good. You're like leading me right in. Is to is to address kind of how we think our current situation is going to shape the future of college admissions. I think you're talking about testing in that way, and I think that's a really critical one. I've said for the last couple of weeks that if the college board and the ACT do not pivot hard right now into something that's meaningful, like full scale revamp of their standardized test into an online version that is way more accessible than the APs were and way more meaningful. The last AP exams were sort of a joke. And I, if they don't do that, I can't see them existing in two or three years. Two or three. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, I know that like the SAT and the, or sorry, the college board and the, and the ACT are kind of like relationship driven with some states right? Some states are, are require their students to take one of those exams in order to earn a state diploma. But states right now are doing away with standardized uh, tests as well as part of their curriculum. And I know that the SAT is 
like really driven into some college prep programs and lots of school curriculum, but I can't imagine a space in which the teachers and the districts are like not re not questioning the volume of resources they were spending on these exams when they won't mean anything for college admission in the future. Well, as much as I would like to feel the same way, I think I'm a little bit more <laughs> pessimistic here. I actually, I came across recently an article in Forbes that was talking about the UC systems move away from test requirements for this upcoming fall due to Corona. And they were pointing out that actually just last year in 2019, the University of California system of schools did its own internal standardized testing task force. Hmm. And they deputized, you know, a crew of um, their own professionals to examine should they keep or do away with standardized test scores as a requirement. And it was interesting because I've, for a long time, probably ever since I had to study for a standardized test myself, have felt mm -hmm. pretty anti them for their duopoly on this uh, admissions game. But the results of the task force, they did not recommend removing the requirement of having a test. And they actually found that the SAT and ACT are still, even despite their shortcomings and their correlation with you know, income levels and that they only predict their first year uh, GPA for the most part, they actually still found those to be a better predictor of college GPA and on-time graduation rate hmm. than a student's high school GPA alone. Chris, the, the problem though with that is that their that data is predicated upon the student already being admitted to the school to begin with using test scores. So they can't really, that's not really a fair study because you're not comparing it against students who did not submit test scores to begin with to be admitted because they couldn't have gotten in to be in the first place. So. I think it's like, I, I, I guess I see that as a, a bit of a, you know, take that with a grain of salt, I think. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think, I think that doesn't, it, it's, it would be impossible for the UC system to get a full picture because they, don't, they, can't, they can't possibly have had the data because those kids would not have gotten in in the first place. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I know there's lots of data that um, goes sort of against that. But I know also that the UC system is currently investigating their own sort of homegrown version of a standardized test. And I would love to hear from either of you guys, what are your thoughts about that? Do you guys think that this situation will lead to, do you think this situation will lead to like a whole host of like, let's say it's just an IV standardized test? Like you take this one exam and you can try to get into the Ivy League schools or you take this one exam for all the UC schools. And then what do we have? We have like 27 different exams as well as whatever other things that students may need to be worrying about in the admissions process. Thoughts? I, um, I, I'm, I'm scared about that, but I am cautiously optimistic and confident that that won't happen because I think that would only happen if, like, it, probably if the Ivy League did it first, because they're kind of the, the drivers in, in, in a lot of ways. And I don't see them doing that because I think, I mean, this is going to get a lot of people, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of disagreement with this, I'm sure, for this comment. But um, the Ivy League these days is a lot more, I think, socially conscious and, and sort of like forward and progressive thinking than people think they are. Um, at least in the admissions offices, they really do look at, you know, that they really are talking about these very same things. They're asking these very same questions and they're, and, and they're very careful in their movements. Um, and I, I know that like, if they were to make a decision like that, they, they would be thinking about the ramifications of what that would mean, like the splintering of the entire process and how that would affect things. And I think they would choose not to do that because it would be concerned of what it what the domino effect would be. That's, that's just my my thinking. I, I I don't I don't see them. I think Ivy League understands their position. They they try to be a, a mover for good um, these days. A lot of people don't agree with that, but that's I mean that's that's my very strong belief. For better or worse, they're not perfect, but 
I think they are trying to use their position to do, you know, to, to be positive movers in, in what little way that they can. My gosh, I can only imagine the, <laughs> instead of having to prepare students for one standardized test, needing to prepare them for multiple and just multiplying all of the logistics that you outlined, Mike, and all of the test prep that is in the background of all that would just be an absolute bear to take on. Or could, or could, you, could you imagine it being like an optional thing where like you could take this test and it would oh, be like a, it would be like a, um, the Tulane optional essay where, you know, if you don't do it, you have no chance, but, oh, they, but they call it optional. You know? What you're describing is the subject tests, right? Like strongly encourage you to take these random subject yeah. tests. Those, those, uh, Mike. I, I so I, I, don't think that the college board's gonna die, but I do think this may be the final coffin and the in, in, in final nail in the coffin for subject tests. Which subject tests mm. need to die a, a quick death. They really do. They're, it's yeah. You know, if uh, what's his name, Charlie Deacon at Georgetown, if he just if he just were to say we're done with them. I think that would that would make them dead right away. They're the only ones that are holding on to subject tests, like like Charlton Heston and his guns. Um, but <laughs> I, I think they are slow. They're they're quickly dying, and I hope that they die very very soon because there's no point. Like they, they these days are the sort of like the next level of of um you know of highlighting income inequality and highlighting privilege inequality. Um, you know, it's like. You know the students that already are disadvantaged on the on the the traditional SATs and ACTs, like they're just even more disadvantaged on subject tests, and that's even more unfair. Yeah, it's like when when uh, you know all your students are still walking around with their Walkman and everybody's got their uh, iPod. You're like, really, guys? Like, what are we, what are we doing here? You're still listening to cassette tapes? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. So, Chris, what's on the horizon? What do you think is going to change with college admissions? I think one way it's going to change things is in terms of tuition-driven schools. I think right now they're being really forced with a question of how do we sustain ourselves in, you know, just financially speaking. Also, in Pennsylvania, we're in a unique situation where the graduating class size over the last couple of years of high school seniors has been smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our public schools, which recently invested a lot of money in amplifying their increasing, you know, redoing their dorms and making campus look nicer mm -hmm. are now faced with having gigantic, very good looking, very comfortable looking, <laughs> empty residence halls. Right, right. And so I think this is going to force some schools to unfortunately shrink combined with others or something similar. And then I also am wondering about schools that are on the bubble of being able to meet full financial need, which is where they cover all of the costs that a family cannot afford to pay. There are some schools, Villanova, for example, has been moving in that direction and has put it in their plan after recent fundraising, but that is their goal. And I wonder with the stock market probably long-term looking fine, but right now hurting endowments, I wonder if that's scaring any schools away from those policies. And the reason those are on the forefront of my mind is because students who don't have much money themselves oftentimes should, well, there's a should here of like have a system set up, but oftentimes rely on a school that is wealthy enough to then be able to pay their way to go there, um, which has all sorts of moral questions there. But if there are fewer schools meeting full financial need, that probably means reduced access for students who are underrepresented. And it raises a whole host of monetary questions in my mind. I wonder if it means that... Um... There's sort of a reimagining of the quote unquote American college dream, if you will. Most of the like dream college scenario for many American students looks a lot like a country club where students are there and, you know, they're hanging out for four years and they're sort of like free to intellectually explore and, um, you know, living away from their parents. There's like there's really like a lot of the American dream is tied up in this notion of what college 
is supposed to be for students. And I wonder if our current situation is going to make us fundamentally reevaluate what that looks like. And for many more students, it might look like community college as part of their experience and then having a two-year on-campus, you know, traditional college experience after community college. I wonder if it's going to look like more students living at home and taking classes online. I mean, we all know that every college in America right now is having to increase its um, accessibility to online coursework because of COVID. And so we know that that's going to be an accessible option for students. So what happens if I can attend a state institution of Pennsylvania where, you know, it's $6,000 a year in tuition and $15,000 a year in room and board, but I'll just stay home, pay the $6,000 a year, which is pretty cheap for tuition and have my parents still make my meals for me. That's not a bad idea. You know, yeah, I think if the um, if the fantasy that folks visualize from a young age about what it means to go to college could catch up to the reality, that's going to be a good thing because it's been years now where students are looking less and less like the quote unquote traditional student of you know going directly to a four year school, finishing in four years. More and more students are taking a pathway through a community college or working a significant number of hours and attending college part-time or going back to school later. And that has been the case for a while. And I work with students every year who want that same dream to be theirs. And I would absolutely love for that to be accessible to everyone. But the reality is that's not what it's actually like for most people. I would say that's what it's like for the lucky few or the privileged who get to experience that, which then creates this sense of being lesser than if you're not able to experience it. Does it connote a sense of failure for not reaching that dream that you always had in mind, which should not be the case? You know, we should be celebrating that students have the persistence to make it through in all of these various ways. And hopefully that comes through now. I, and I, I would agree. And I think, I think what, I, what, what I'm concerned with is, um, you know, it, it, are, are schools going to treat this as a sort of like, let's, let's, let's weather the storm and then get back to normal? Or is this going to be a, all right, well, let's weather the storm, but also think about how we can reinvent ourselves and how we can, you know, sort of rethink, think education, re rethink what we can offer to students in the future. Like, is this going to be a moment to just survive, or is it a moment to, you know, survive and plan for the next rainy day also? Um, you know, or, or just like blow it all up essentially, you know, and, 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 like sort of really, really fundamentally shift the the system. Um, I mean, I think I think the 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 college degree isn't going away anytime soon. You know, as a requirement for you know, as a as a method of social mobility, as as a way of your job requirement. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. So I think that, and and also that sort of like societal myth of you know the. Uh, the college dorm, the collegiate gothic dorm, and the ivy co ivy covered walls, and all that stuff. Like that's that that's I don't think going away anytime soon. So, I I don't think that means that colleges can't still be innovative and progressive and actually think about ways to really, um, you know, reach reach the students who aren't getting reached and you know who aren't being helped to persist and being helped to afford this and and, and access. Know, uh, and 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 who who are disproportionately affected by just the way things the way society is different right now and the way um, that it's it's not there's not going to be a switch that's flipped to make things back to normal anytime soon um, and I mean but yeah but so I, I worry about that I also worry about like schools that um, as I mean as first thing Chris said about making budget that's I, I was sitting here you know you can't see me but I was nodding my head I was like I literally wrote a note about you know how budget is making budget is going to be the, the, the biggest factor because um, you know it's like 
school doesn't, if a school is not going to make budget, they can't try to invent themselves. Like that's the thing they have to worry about. It's like, what is it in psychology? Maslow's hierarchy of needs or whatever, or like if you don't have you know, housing and security and food and stuff. You can't, you're not going to be able to worry about making yourself into a better person. Like if you don't, if you're not going to, you can't make budget, you're not going to be able to think about how to like, how to better serve students in this sort of new environment. Um, so I think you're going to have, again, probably this you know, split between the schools that have the resources to weather the storm comfortably and, you know, and, and get through this and, and can and have, and have the opportunities to rethink themselves versus the ones that are at risk of, you know, even surviving and, and are, you know, like, are the ones that, um, rely on on full pay international students who are not going to have them this fall and that's why they're taking a million kids off their wait list who are full pay kids like you know, there's been just an incredible year for wait lists all for full pay kids though um and so all these things that are that are really based around money when i think that the changes and the, and the forward thinking policies should really be based around things other than money um as much as possible, but it's it's probably unfortunately not going to be because it's going to be based on money if the schools want to survive. Let's get into a little reflection on this conversation a little bit. So, what ways do you think that this conversation has, you know, hearkening back to the title of the podcast, has kind of encouraged you or pushed you to rethink maybe our job and college admissions or college admissions? I'll, I'll go first this time. I, I think. That our current situation has made me rethink rethink a lot of things about our job. But I would say this conversation in particular, I'm left thinking a lot about um, what kinds of things we're really doing in our work. And I'm questioning, like, how much am I teaching my students about themselves versus about a process that they have to access? How much am I teaching my students about like how to explore what they care about, how to set goals, how to do these kinds of things that are going to inspire them after they leave our schools and head off into college or beyond, how they can reflect on themselves and what they like and whether they're they're meeting those likes and their interests with their everyday activity. How am I doing that in my work right now because those are the things that when maybe another wave of COVID, knock on wood, happens, or maybe another situation happens where they're left to kind of uh, navigate learning at home by themselves or with their families around or what have you, how are we going to give them the tools to access that in a more fulfilling way? How are we going to give them understandings that will allow them to live joyful lives. You know, that's what that's what we're really all trying to do, right? Is live joyful, productive lives in which we give back to the world, which we're, you know, pursuing something that's greater than ourselves. And I think that this situation has made me really think about the aspects of the program that I'm administering at my school that encourages students to do to do those things. And then how we can get everybody on board with talking about that more. I'll 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 bounce off that um, for a second and say that what what's uh, if there if there's a positive from all this, I think um, it could be that it's 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 building a situation where um, students are going to be more able to really like the story they have to tell is a story that's going to be heard because especially if there's not there are not going to be test scores. The school's looking at, you know, that that's 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 one fewer variable, um, you know, one fewer piece of data that they're going to have to evaluate their application. So they're going to put more focus on other things. And one of the things they're going to put more focus on is things like essays and short answers and kind of that that real, you know, holistic part of the application process. And I think um, certainly as as somebody who works at a school with all girls, um, you know, and and where the sort of one of the primary things that they that the school really promotes is, you know, being confident, proud, independent people, um, you know, I think it, it's, it's, it's kind of exciting to, to you know, have, ho hopefully um, have the students be able to really sort of internalize that, yeah, their, their, their story and their voice 
um, will be heard. And, and they really should be confident that the story that they want to tell, that the, the parts of themselves they want to share um, does matter and it is important. And you know, whether it's even if it's a, a story that, you know, other people are writing their story about too, it's not going to be the same way they've written theirs. It's not going to be the exact same story, not going to be the exact same experiences. Like they have a unique um, story to tell and experience to share, and they should be proud of that. And they should use that to, you know, build themselves up and be be confident and proud in who they are uh, and, and with what they can share um, with only a college mission office, but a college community and ultimately the world. Mike, I think one way that this is helping me to rethink education is a reminder of what both of you have touched upon about how we're all doing our best to help in whatever way that we can. And it's been a good reminder for me that that's something I value in not just trying to include in some aspect of my life, but that I really enjoy devoting my career to something that I can get that sort of feeling of fulfillment back from, from a selfish point of view. Um, but it's also helped me think through mm. um, how important this process is for students. I've, I, prior to coming on this, I actually solicited some feedback from students uh, through just an Instagram post. And I texted a few of my students to ask them, you know, what has this experience been like for you? And it really highlighted that this is a subject that a lot of families have no experience with. And so the importance of college and career advocacy, completion, financial aid knowledge is just more important now than ever. Uh, also big picture in terms of rethinking, it's been interesting. So I teach a class normally twice a day that all of my seniors take. And so they'll see me twice a week and having to switch to remote learning has also opened up possibilities of what what multimedia can I use now? How can I collaborate with folks in a way that I otherwise couldn't? Um, and it's also helped me think through, you know, how can a student continue learning no matter where they are or what position they're in? Because I'm thinking of one student who she was a senior in college this past year, just graduated from the University of Maryland and was sent home abruptly during her final semester of senior year after having worked so hard to get that far and was living on her family's couch because her bedroom is now occupied by other family members and there's kids running around all the time and she's not able to go to say a library because everything is closed. So she's doing all of the work that normally takes so much, but on a couch surrounded by noise and lots of other people. And so what, in what ways is technology actually helping that? And in what ways can we continue to improve things so that those who are so much more affected than others have an opportunity to gain from this instead of fall behind? And unfortunately right now it's the, there's gonna be a chasm that travels with students for probably many years. But thinking forward, I think it's giving us a space to rethink what role technology plays in all of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think education futurists for many years have said that the, uh, that technology is going to be the catalyst for change in education, serious change in education. And I think it, right now we're really being pushed to rethink that you know i think we in the early 2000s maybe like 2010 2011 so the early early late aughts the early teens maybe we were yeah, what is that that like whatever intermediary space we were in like the app age you know and where everybody was like try these 68 apps that will change your student's life and i think Right now we're in we're in a stage where it's like, the heck with the apps, man. I really need to figure this out. Like this is how I'm learning right now. So stop with the apps. I need to like get into real learning here, and that is a fundamentally different kind of question. 
that I think does have the opportunity to really change the trajectory for a lot of students like you're talking about, Chris. All right, so we're getting into the last segment. We want to shout out some really cool stuff that's happening in the world that I know um, you guys come to share. Kevin, you want to share your plug first? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I don't know about it's being like a super cool thing to share, but it's something that's really been um, a helpful resource for me just in, you know, in my role as a college counselor. Um, it's a, um, a website that uh, is actually hosted by um, Compass Prep, which is a, a professional test prep organization, but they have a, have a ton of free resources on their website. Um, and this particular one is just their, um, their uh, college profiles, uh, which is a list of all of, uh, you know, several hundred colleges um, that gives their standardized test uh, middle 50% ranges, but also, and the most important thing, in my opinion, is um, whether or not they've gone test optional. And this is a daily updated um, form that is, uh, again, it, it's free. Um, it's, it's on, it's compassprep.com slash college dash profiles, um, or you can just find it through their website, compassprep.com. Um, and again, they're a professional company, but uh, this is a free resource that gives you, you know, up-to-date information um, about schools and their changing policies and whether they've gone test optional, whether they haven't. And I think given how fast things are moving these days, um, you know, it's, it's something that, again, I, I've, I've had an open tab of my browser for weeks. <laughs> so um, it's very, very helpful. Awesome. Chris, what do you want to plug? Well, since I was not given a limit to how many things to plug, I've expanded my list a little bit <laughs> since the start of the conversation. <laughs> Chris. I'm giving you a limit right now. One thing. Ooh. What do you want to plug? <laughs> One thing. All right. Well, then my plug is to direct any and all of your students to my advising Instagram account, uh, which is one thing. <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, what one a thing plug. Technology. Visit, Chris. This is one way, but it is at horn, H-O-R-N-E, advising, H-O-R-N-E, advising. For all the latest in scholarships and college and career awesome uh i'll tell you right. you're the second person to plug their instagram handle here on rethinking edu so that's cool i get it i plug this this podcast shamelessly all the time <laughs> so um i'm gonna share the last plug i'm gonna direct you all to, over to the washington monthly's college guide really really interesting listing of colleges and i don't love the u.s news and world report in fact i would i would pretty much use the exact opposite of love to describe my relationship with the u.s news and world report um college rankings but what's cool about and have a whole separate podcast yeah that. that's a whole actually <laughs> i i started a i had a podcast a couple of years ago called college and coffee and i i spent an entire episode talking about the U.S. News and World Report. So go listen to that that episode. It's somewhere on the internet. Um, I you, you did plug your podcast. I did. There, you go. <laughs> there we go. What I love about Washington Monthly is that they put a bunch of data together that is not usually explored when you're talking about um, looking at colleges. So, for example, they uh, show you right directly on a chart how many Pell eligible graduates are going to the institution about the social mobility ranking of the institution. They give you a list of the most affordable um, colleges in the country. It's a really terrific resource. And again, you can find all of our plugs that we just mentioned in the podcast description, whether you're checking us out on iTunes, wherever you might get your podcasts. Listen, Kevin, it's been great. Chris, it's been awesome. Really appreciate you guys joining me tonight. To all of you out there listening to this podcast, I really appreciate you chiming in for our first knowledge drop episode look back for future knowledge drops and um in the meantime rate us on itunes really helps get our podcast out there thanks for listening